Welcome to Crossroads. They, uh, my name is Ryan. I am not the pastor, the lead pastor here. I'm not any kind of pastor. I'm not even on staff. I'm just a guy that they let preach here once in a while, and I love it. So uh, they like to play a little joke on me here, and it goes something like having a prolonged announcement for food share, and then having the choir and letting Dave have the microphone, and then giving me 40 minutes to preach a sermon, which they know I've never kept a sermon under 40 minutes, uh, and expecting me to have all of you guys out of here just after 12. So we'll see how that goes. It is Christmas season, the third week of Advent, during which we here at Crossroads preach from the book of Revelation. (laughs) It's awesome. I think at this pace we'll have a riveting Christmas message from, oh, I don't know, Jesus spitting Laodicea out of his mouth like vomit. <laughs> so that should put Christ back in Christmas. <laughs> I love it. I love it. We are preaching through Revelation right now. If you're new to Crossroads, one of the things that you'll find is this is a church where we are committed to the Word of God, and that's how we preach here. We preach from the Word of God, and uh, we've been in this series in the book of Revelation, which I have loved. I love the book of Revelation. I love it because it tells us about who Jesus is, and I think that's the way we need to read this book. That's the lens that we need to have when we read through Revelation. What does this tell us about who Jesus is? John writes or starts out, this book saying the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I love that. And I think when we have eyes to see that, and that it has so much to tell us about Jesus and his character and what it means to follow him. And unfortunately, this is a book that throughout Christian history has caused a lot of confusion and tension and some conflict and division. Unfortunately, if you read 10 commentaries on the book of Revelation, you'll get 12 different interpretations. And uh, so my encouragement to you is stop reading the commentaries and just read Revelation. And just take it at its most basic meanings, and I think you can get a lot out of it. I want to encourage you as a church to really press into this book and not not, not give in to confusion because there's a lot of symbolism and we don't know what to do with that, but read it at its most basic levels and, and there's so much that we can learn about the character of Jesus and what it means to follow him through this book of Revelation. It is a book of hope. It's a book that uh, gives, us great, gives us reason to have great perseverance through difficulties and trials. We also preach here uh, believing that the Bible was written to a specific people in history and had specific meanings and understandings to people in history. And so we approach Revelation in that same same manner, believing that this book was written to a specific people group in history and it had specific meaning to that people. And so I think we do well to try to understand who was this written to? What was their context? What was their setting? What was their circumstances? And what would this have meant to them before we start applying it to ourselves or even looking to the future? And so that's the way we've been approaching this book is what, who is the original audience and what did this mean to them? And that's the approach that we're going to take 
Today, we're going to spend most of our time there before we start applying it to our, our circumstances today. So we're going to read from Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8. We like to stand for the reading of God's word here. So if you're able, would you join us? We do this simply out of respect. Do this simply out of respect for God and his word. I'm going to pray for us, and then I will read Revelation 2, starting in verse 8. Jesus, you said in your word that you would send your Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth, to remind us of all that you said and did. So according to your promise, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come this morning? Uh, Come and give us fresh revelation of Jesus. Would you open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say uh, through this wonderful letter to the the church in Smyrna? pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8, it says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. You will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Amen. Have a seat. So as I said, I think it would be helpful for us to do a little bit of work to start with, to understand a little bit about Smyrna and the church that exists there. Now this presents a bit of a challenge for us. Because we don't have any biblical data on the church in Smyrna. Last week, Rod preached uh, the, the first letter, Jesus' letter to the church in, in Ephesus, which is very helpful because we have a lot of information about Ephesus in the Bible. Acts 19, Paul's journey to Ephesus. We get a window into the culture that is in, that's in Ephesus. We could have a whole epistle, six chapters written to the Ephesian church, which gives us a window into the heart of the church in Ephesians. We have Paul writing to Timothy, who's in Ephesus when he's writing to him. And so we've got some biblical data that we can draw from to kind of build this understanding of Ephesus. We don't have that with Smyrna. In fact, Smyrna is only mentioned twice in the Bible. When you read it, if you have a Bible like mine, you'll have a little footnote. In verse 8, it will point you back to Revelation 1, verse 11, which tells you the seven churches that it's going to be written to. And then the footnote in that, Smyrna, points you back to Revelation 2, verse 8. That's what we have in Smyrna. So we've got to, it would be helpful, I think, for us to have a little bit of understanding of Smyrna and the church and what's going on in that area. 
So we lear- we've learned throughout this series, and Rod did a great job last week. If you, if you weren't here last week, go and listen to last week's sermon. He did a great job painting a picture of Roman culture and Roman rule in that day. And what's helpful to understand is that the entire New Testament is written under the rule of Rome. So everything we read about in the New Testament is in Roman culture. The church, the Christians, the Jews are living in Roman culture. And in that day, Rome was the world power. It was a one world government in that time, and that one world government was Rome. Rome had a thirst, an insatiable thirst for power and for comfort. This is Rome. It covers uh, that whole area. If you look at a, a map, Rome essentially encircles the Mediterranean Sea. And then there's this area called Asia Minor. Asia Minor, you read about in the Bible. This is where the seven churches in the book of Revelation are located. It's on the north side of the Mediterranean Sea and the northeast side of the Mediterranean Sea. It's in current day Turkey. So if you go to a map, you find Turkey. That's essentially where Asia Minor was in the Bible. Izmir was in Asia Minor, and it's in uh, what's current day Izmir. So if you hear about Izmir, Turkey's been in the press uh, again recently with some bombings that have happened there. Uh, Izmir is a large, Turkey, or large city in Turkey. This is where Smyrna was. Now Smyrna, we know from history, and Rod talked about this last week, all seven of these cities where these churches are located are, are fighting for prestige and power. They're, they're competing for, for, for influence in the Roman culture. And Smyrna is one of them. It would have been a large, influential, wealthy uh, uh, city in the Roman Empire. It's located just north of Ephesus. And there was a There was a competition between Ephesus and Smyrna. And there's a competition for greatness. Now, Smyrna never reaches the greatness that Ephesus reaches. But they compete and they try and they become very influential. It's a port city along a major trade route, so it would have been very wealthy and comfortable. And what's important to know that will be significant for this morning is that in their competition, in their effort for greatness, there develops in Smyrna this, this, this imperial cult, this, 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 uh, this, this vehement, strong, nationalistic pride to Rome, develops into a cult-like worship of the Roman Empire. So in a place like Smyrna, if you want to thrive, if you want to advance, if you want to enjoy the comforts and the pleasures of Rome, you need to fit into this imperial cult. And if you don't, life can be very difficult for you. Now, what would that have meant? We don't know exactly. There's different, uh, different schools of thought of how this all would have played out, but It's likely that if you did not wear the mark of the empire, if you did not fit into this imperial cult that had developed in Smyrna, 
perhaps you would not have been allowed to sell and trade in the public markets. Uh, perhaps uh, your property would have been confiscated. Perhaps your taxes would have been exorbitantly high. Uh, in some cases, perhaps you were thrown into prison, even killed. So this is the culture of Smyrna. Now, there's a couple of other things that we need to, well, I think it's helpful to understand about this day. We know from this letter that there are Jews. There's a Jewish community. Now, I know it says that, uh, Jesus says that there are those that pretend to be Jews but are not. What he's not saying there is there are, there are uh, uh, pagans that are pretending to be Jews. He's not saying there are Gentiles that are pretending to be Jewish ethnically. Um, there are actually Jews there. I'm going to unpack this a little bit more in just a couple of minutes. But we, from the Bible, we know there's Jews there, and historically, there's some evidence that there was a Jewish community and potentially a pretty large, influential Jewish community. In fact, all over the Roman world, the Jewish community has a significant amount of influence. Now, again, there's different schools of thought about the prevalence of the Jewish community and how vast and widespread and how populated it was. Um, but we know that there were Jews from all over the world in Rome, or there, there were Jews all over the world. You can see this, for instance, in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. It says that on the day of Pentecost, there were Jews from every nation of the world, meaning Rome. There were Jews that had gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost. How, why are they all over the world and not located in Jerusalem? Well, this likely goes back to uh, the end of Judah, uh, of Judah in the Old Testament, which is the end of, uh, the end of uh, Second Kings and Second Chronicles. You'll read that under the King Jehoiakim, Babylon comes in, captures Jerusalem, exiles the Jews, and they go all over the B Babylonian Empire at that point. So now fast forward 400 years, we get to the New Testament, and in Jesus' day, there's Jews spread all over the Roman Empire. So we know this about the Jewish culture. We also know there's a church in Ephesus, right? Or in, in Smyrna. How do we know that? Well, because Jesus is writing to the church in Smyrna. How did they get there? We don't know. History doesn't tell us. The Bible doesn't tell us. Perhaps it was after Pentecost, 3,000 people, 3,000 Jews come to know Jesus, and then they, maybe they go back all over the world. Maybe they end up in Smyrna. Maybe it's from Paul's journey. We don't know if he went to um, Smyrna or not. We know he was in the area. So maybe this is a result of Paul's journeys. We don't know exactly how they got there, but we know that they're there. And we know that they are poor and afflicted. Why are they poor and afflicted? Well, again, I think understanding a little bit of the culture and the history of that day will help us understand that. You see, in that day, the Jews largely got a pass. They largely got a pass from Rome. Why? We don't know exactly why. Uh, likely because they had a certain amount of uh, uh, influence in the Roman Empire and a revolt among the Jewish people would have been bad news for the Roman Empire. So to keep the peace, they gave Jews these pa this past, these exemptions. Perhaps that's why. We don't know, but we know that the Jews get a certain pass from the Roman Empire. What do I mean by that? 
Well, they get a pass from the pagan worship and some of the cultural expectations. They get a pass to worship their God how they want to worship and still allowed to engage in Roman culture. So there's this agreement. There's this compromise between Rome and the religious leaders of the Jews at that point. By the time we get to Jesus' day, we find that the religious leaders of the Jewish community are very much linked with the Roman leaders. You'll see this in John chapter 15, where Jesus is having this conflict with the Pharisees, as he often does. And uh, they accuse Jesus, uh, uh, they, they make these accusations against Jesus, and uh, they say, we, our father is Abraham, and Jesus says, no, if your father was Abraham, you would love God and you would love me, but because you don't accept me as the Messiah, your father is the devil. Which may help us make sense of what John is saying here with there's these Jews that pretend to be Jewish, but they're not. They're actually a synagogue of Satan. What does he mean there? I think he's addressing Jews that have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. He's not talking about people that are pretending to be ethnically Jewish. He's talking about ethnic Jews that have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And in essence saying the true Jews are those that believe Jesus is the Messiah, that accept Jesus. I think another thing that is helpful for us to understand about the culture in that day is that the early Christians, and when I mean the early Christians, I mean, I mean the Christians years and decades after Pentecost. Early Christians would have been inherently Jewish in nature. They would have been largely ethnically and traditionally Jewish, meaning they still would have followed Jewish tradition and law. Why? Because the law to a true Jew points to the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, so by engaging in the law, you're celebrating Jesus as the Messiah. Now, now I want to be really clear. I am not advocating for us to return to Jewish customs as if that's going to make us more spiritual. Jesus, or, uh, the early church addresses this in Acts chapter 15, where Gentiles come to the faith. But you'll see, even in that, if you're familiar with that story, Paul goes out and Gentiles start coming to the faith. And these Jews who follow Jesus, they believe Jesus is the Messiah, when Gentiles start coming to that same faith, they say, well, now to follow Jesus, you need to follow Jewish custom. And then the letter from uh, the, the leaders in Jerusalem, the Christian leaders, say, no, 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 you don't have to follow Jewish custom, just believe in Jesus. As a matter of fact, when you read that letter in Acts chapter 15, it's addressed to Gentile believers. It's not addressed to Jewish believers. Why is this important? Well, it's important because what starts to happen in history is, well, these early Christians continued to engage in Jewish customs. There came a point where these false Jews, these Jews that Jesus calls a synagogue of Satan, start to exclude those that follow Jesus from their gatherings. 
You see this in Paul's journeys when he goes to, say, Thessalonica, and the Jews come there and run him out of town, and he goes to Berea, and they come and they follow him, and they run him out of town there. So you start to see that these Jews get jealous, as Scripture says, and they start to exclude these Christians from their gatherings. Why is that important? Why did I just take time to articulate all of that? Because that's important if you're a Christian in a place like Smyrna under Roman rule. Because if you're a Christian in a place like Smyrna and the Jews no longer welcome you into their gatherings, now you're faced with a choice. Am I, I no longer experience the exemptions that Rome is giving me I no longer enjoy the exemption to worship my God however I want. Now, if I want to engage in culture and enjoy the freedoms and the liberties and the opulence of Roman culture, now I've got to fit into the imperial cult, and now I'm faced with a decision. Do I bend a knee to Rome, or do I stay committed to worshiping the Christ? I think this is the church that we read about in Smyrna. I think this begins to make sense of why it says that this church is enduring poverty and afflictions. What I don't think Jesus is doing here is, is addressing Christians who have come under unfortunate economic circumstances. I think what Jesus, who Jesus is addressing here is Christians that have been excluded from Jewish gatherings, so no longer enjoy the exemptions that they get, but also are not willing to bend the knee to Rome, and therefore are experiencing incredible poverty and affliction. I think this is the church that Jesus is addressing here, which is makes Jesus' introduction of himself even more compelling. Think about how Jesus introduces himself here. In each of these letters, what we're going to find is that Jesus starts it out introducing himself from one of the pieces that describe Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. And the, the piece that Jesus chooses here for the church in Smyrna, he says these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, why would Jesus choose that description for this church? Well, when Jesus refers to himself as the first and the last, he's making a direct reference to Isaiah, Isaiah 41 and beyond there. If you're familiar with Isaiah's book, in Isaiah chapter 40, starts this messianic prophecy of the suffering servant. But several times throughout there, God refers to himself as the first and the last. Essentially saying, I am greater than anything you're experiencing right now. I am greater than this Roman Empire. I am greater than all of these kings that look so threatening I am the one who was in the very beginning. I am the one who spoke and all of creation sprung forth. I am the one who was before all of that. 
And I am the one who will be there in the end. And through it all, I am greater than any of this. What an encouraging word that would have been to Christians who are suffering. For Jesus himself to say, I am that one. I am the one who was with God in the beginning. I am the word that God spoke and all of creation sprung forth. I'm greater than any of this. I'm greater than any of this. And then Jesus says also, I am also the one who died and came to life. I am the one who, as Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 53, was despised and rejected by man. Isaiah 53 says, He took up our infirmities, He carried our sorrows, yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him all, and by His wounds we were healed. And I love what Jesus is doing here because I think in these two pieces, the first and the last, the one who died and came to life, Jesus is presenting the very essence of the gospel. The very essence of the gospel is the God who was in the beginning, who created all of this, and he created it good. And he created man to be in right relationship with him and enjoy the fruitfulness of creation to live in perfect peace and shalom, and yet man rebelled against that, that we chose our own way, that we thought we had a better way, and that because of our rebellion, a curse was brought on all of creation that screwed everything up. Because of our rebellion, we experienced all of the pain and the suffering and the death and the heartache and the difficulties because of our own rebellion. And yet God said all the way back in Genesis 3, he says, but I've got a plan to fix it. You guys just screwed this whole thing up and it's gonna get really bad, but I've got a plan to fix it. And God's plan to fix it was to come down and not come down and take all the pain away. That was not Jesus' plan. Jesus' plan was to come down and experience that pain to come down into the midst of that pain and that mess and that chaos and to experience it. And not only experience it, but to take it on himself. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says this, this, uh, I don't think it was, it's in 2 Corinthians, I think it's later than that. He says this Christ, this Jesus, he not only took your sin, but he became our sin so that we could become his righteousness. Jesus is saying to the Samaritan Samaritan church here, he's saying, I know, I know your poverty, and I know your afflictions. He's not saying, I've I've seen it, I've I've heard about it, I watched a news clip, I, I, I saw in a Google search that you guys are having a difficult time. Jesus is saying, no, I've, I've experienced it. I know what it's like to be rejected by your best friends. I know what it's like when those that are supposed to welcome in my kingdom instead reject me and hang me on a cross. I know what that's like. I know that. Maybe some of you guys need to hear that this morning. 
Jesus is saying, I, I know. I know. I've been there. I've done it. I've taken that on myself. And yet Jesus, he doesn't stop there. He says, I see all this bad stuff that's happening to you. But guys, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. For some of you, it's going to get a lot worse. I see that you're suffering and you're poor because of your commitment to me. And I need you to know it's going to get worse. In fact, some of you are going to be thrown into prison for 10 days to be tested. Now, what does that mean? They were going to be thrown into prison for 10 days to be tested. Now, some scholars and commentators will link this to Daniel, to Daniel and his friends testing, where they're tested for 10 days and they reject the good gifts and the good fruits of the Babylonian empire and, uh, and they're they, 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 they endure this test for 10 days and they come out of it even stronger. And that's what we want to believe, isn't it? Isn't that what we want to believe Jesus is saying here? You're going to endure this for 10 days, but stay strong. It's only going to be temporary. Then you're going to be released from prison and you're going to be even stronger and it's going to get better. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. Because of the language that Jesus is using and because of the culture in which they lived, people in that day likely would have been thrown in prison for 10 days as a holding cell before they're thrown into the arena to be martyred. That's likely what Jesus is addressing here. It is most likely that Jesus is not saying, just endure this for a few days and it's going to get better I think what he's saying here is it's going to get worse. You're going to get thrown in prison. Stay faithful even to the point of death because some of you are about to die. Some of you are about to be martyred. Man, this, this, this resonates so strongly with Jesus' words to John the Baptist, a story that many of us are very familiar with. When John the Baptist, who it says in Scripture, prepared the way for Jesus, a man who himself was very familiar with sufferings and afflicted. A man who Jesus himself says no man born of a woman is greater than John the Baptist. And at the end of his life of faithfulness, he finds himself in prison. Under Herod and about to die. And he knows it. And just before he's about to die, John sends his own disciples to Jesus. To say, Jesus, are you the one we've been waiting for? We've been holding out, we've been hoping, are you the one that we're waiting for or do we have to wait for somebody else? And Jesus replies to John's disciples. He says, go back to John and tell him, report to him what you've seen. The blind receive sight, the dead are raised. The poor have the gospel, have the gospel preached to them. And then Jesus says, and blessed is the man who's not offended at me. What is Jesus saying to John here? Well, it's interesting when you look at what he says there with the blind will receive sight, the sick will be healed, the dead will be raised. Those are all references back to Isaiah again. Something that Jesus leaves out there, and this is all from Isaiah where Isaiah is talking about what the Messiah is going to do. And it's interesting when you look at it, he leaves one key piece out. Because in Isaiah... It also says that the prisoner will be set free. And Jesus leaves that piece out. 
as if to say, John, you've been faithful. I am the one that you've been waiting for. You've been faithful. John, you're going to die in prison. Don't be offended at me. Stay faithful to the end. I find it compelling that Jesus' exhortation to the church in Smyrna is not, guys, it's going to get better. Or, guys, fight for your freedoms. It's be faithful to the end. Be faithful in this suffering. And you find this so often in Scripture where Jesus is, and, and the writers of Scripture are saying, be faithful in the times of suffering. Be faithful in the times of difficulty. Elsewhere in Scripture, it actually tells us rejoice in difficulty. Think about this in Acts chapter 5. The disciples, they get thrown in prison and they're flogged and they're beaten and they come out and what do they do? They rejoice. It says they rejoice because they were counted worthy to share in the sufferings of Christ. Second Peter 4, Peter writing, saying don't be surprised when you face various trials as if something strange were happening to you, but rather rejoice that you get to share in the sufferings of Christ. Jesus, to his own disciples in Matthew chapter 5, after the Beatitudes, when he says, blessed are the poor and the hungry and the meek. Then he turns to his disciples and says, blessed are you. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice, 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 for so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. And friends, this message flies in the face of the culture of Rome. It flies in the face of a culture that holds so tightly to power and comfort. And it flies in the face of a culture that we live in today. It flies in the face of a culture that tells us that what we deserve and what we want is comfort and safety and security. And where that's the thing that so many people cling so tightly to is our right to be comfortable, our right to be safe, our right to be secure. I tell you, this confronts me. It confronts me in some, some, some real ways. I, one of the, uh, my wife and I live here in the west side, just about a mile away from here in an area that's still not very cool to be in, kind of a gnarly area. And when I tell people about uh, our ministry and what we do, and they hear that I'm raising, me and my wife are raising our kids in this neighborhood, uh, one, of the, one of the questions that we get very often is, is it safe? Is it safe? And you live there, is that safe? You're raising your kids there, is that safe? Sure didn't feel safe this summer when a guy ran from the police and hid out right behind our house, woke us up at two o'clock in the morning and the police came with their dogs and their guns drawn and pulled this guy out from behind our house. That didn't feel very safe. Sure didn't feel very safe the next day when there was a standoff between the police and a shooting suspect and the entire block was shut down for hours and we were told to stay away from the windows because we were in the line of fire 
if a shootout broke out. Sure didn't feel safe a couple of years ago when we found a bullet lodged in the side of our house from a gang shooting uh, just a block away. You know, six feet above my bedroom window where my wife and I were sleeping. That sure didn't feel very safe. But why is this the, why is this the, the determining factor of whether or not we're going to follow Jesus? Why is this the first question that we ask? Is it safe? And are we so committed to our comfort and our safety that we're willing to compromise on what it means to follow Jesus? Friends, I'll tell you, this weighs very heavy on my heart right now. This latest election cycle uh, weighed very heavy on my heart. It is very difficult when you look at the Roman Empire of Jesus' day. It's very difficult to avoid the, similarity, the similarities of the culture that we live in today. A culture that is hungry for comfort and power. It's very difficult to avoid the similarities of the religious leaders of Jesus' day and the, relig- the religious leaders of our day. It's very difficult to avoid those similarities. And it, and it confronts me And it forces me to ask some very difficult questions. See, this latest election, I'm not a politician. I don't want to get into that discussion. But I was, I tell you, the thing that I heard so often is we need to fight for our religious freedoms. We need to fight for our religious freedoms. And that was the thing that was so important. We got to fight for our comfort, we got to fight for our freedom. It makes me question, have we, at what point, at what point are we going to compromise our commitment to following Jesus for the sake of comfort and safety? It makes me question, are we more committed to self-preservation and comfort than we are to following Jesus? Because Jesus never said this thing was going to be easy, and he never said it was going to be safe. As a matter of fact, Jesus said the very opposite The very opposite. He said, if you want to follow me, the world is going to hate you and it's going to cost you your whole life. That's what it's going to be. He says this very clearly. He says, if you want to follow me, this is what it's going to mean. It's going to mean you're going to take up your cross every day and follow me. Why would somebody take up their cross in Jesus' day? There's only one reason why somebody would take up their cross and it's to die. And this is what Jesus says it's going to mean to follow him. See, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we've got to think, we're going to think differently about this world. We're going to think differently about issues around us. I've already stirred the pot. I'll stir it a little bit more. We'll think differently about things like immigration. See, this has to confront not only our, the way we think and our ideologies, but it has to th- confront the ways that we live. We'll think about immigration differently, and our first thought won't be, how do we secure and protect ourselves? But our first thought will be, how do we care for the poor and the oppressed? How do we ca- take care of those that are suffering around us? And I wish that we could tear down that concrete wall right there and see our neighbors, this neighborhood that we're called to, 
and called the love. Because right across that concrete wall, there are thousands, thousands of people, believers, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are scared to death right now because they don't know if they're going to stay in this country or not. How are we going to respond to that as followers of Jesus? What would it look like for us to lay down our political alliances and to take up our cross and to follow Jesus every day? What would that look like? Because friends, when you make that commitment in your life, your life won't fit into the world around you. Your greatest comfort will not be in economic security. Your greatest joy will be in knowing Jesus. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, he says, whatever gain that I had, he's talking about his former life before Jesus when he had it pretty good and he had a lot of religious comforts and freedoms. He says, those gains that I thought were so important to me, now that I know Jesus, I count it all as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. He writes to the, uh, the, the, the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians. He says these temporary afflictions that you're facing. And, and, and remember the temporary afflictions of Paul. It was stoning, uh, uh, shipwrecks, uh, uh, hungry, er, sleepless nights, hungry days, uh, floggings. He was stoned to the point where he thought he was, they thought he was dead. The, and he says these temporary afflictions that I face... They're not worth comparing to the glory that awaits me in Jesus. What would it look like if our greatest hope was in the glory to come? What would it look like if we had our eyes, as, Jesus, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, were fixed on Jesus? And that was the thing that we were committed to. And even if that costs me my religious freedoms, I am not going to bend my knee to Rome. Even if that costs me poverty and affliction and ultimately death, I'm going to have my eyes fixed on Jesus because there's something greater to come. What would it look like for us to live that way? The Roman Empire was disrupted by the church of Jesus Christ, not because of their resistance or their fight for political freedom. It was... Over, it, was up, it was upended by the, by the Christian church by their, because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. And they're willing to sacrifice and die for that. Some of you guys this morning have made that commitment and you're following Jesus and you're fiercely pursuing him and you're finding that it's difficult and it's hard and family doesn't understand you and it's difficult at work and... Rejoice. Rejoice. Remain faithful. Because it's just temporary afflictions. And there's greater joy that is to come. And I think for all of us, I think where we are right now in history, and even the things that were recently stirred up, are reason for pause to give us great reflection and reflect upon the condition of our heart and where does our allegiance truly lie? What are we most fiercely committed to in this life? What is that thing that we are willing to die for? What is the thing that we're fighting for right now? 
I want to tell you there's a kingdom to come that's so much greater than anything this world has to offer. So friends, let's be a community like the church in Smyrna that is fiercely committed to the kingdom of God. That is our eyes fixed fiercely on Jesus. That is willing to take up our cross every day, even if it costs us our life. That the world might know that Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Jesus, you are truly worthy of it all. You're worthy of our whole lives. You're worthy of our sacrifice. And in you, there truly is the greatest joys and the greatest satisfaction. And I pray, God, for those here this morning that are experiencing difficulty because of their commitment to follow you, I pray, God, that you would strengthen them in their inner being, that they would hear you whisper this morning, be faithful. Be faithful to the end. Be faithful to the end. God, for those of us here that are finding this morning our hearts conflicted and offended, I pray, God, that you would continue to convict and reveal our own hearts to us. God, that we might be truly pure, that we might be truly committed to you and your kingdom. I pray, God, that our witness would go out here strong and bold, that there would be a multitude that would come to know you as the true king. In Jesus' name, amen.